for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. The chairman of the conservative Breitbart News website he is put in charge of the Trump campaign. Major health insurer Aetna is the latest to pull back from Obamacare. And the superintendent of the Chicago police is calling for the firing of seven police officers for their response to the fatal shooting of Laquan McDonald in 2014. Here for the Friday News Roundup, Olivier Knox of Yahoo News, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg of the New York Times, and Manu Raju of CNN. And you can certainly watch the News Roundup live on our website, www.drshow.org. You can call us at 800-433-8850. Send us an email to drshow at wamu.org. You can follow us on Facebook or send us a tweet. And good Friday to all of you. Hey, Dan. Hi, Diane. Hi, Diane. Good to have you all here. Manu um, Raju, we learned this morning that Paul Manafort, the uh, who was the former head of the Trump campaign, has now resigned. What's that all about? Is it because of accusations that he had a relationship with the Russian government or something else? Well, this story literally is just breaking, Diane. I mean, just minutes ago, we're learning that Paul Manafort is resigning, and it really just uh, shows uh, that Donald Trump has just not been happy with the direction of his campaign. I mean, you look at poll after poll, and he is losing. In battleground states, he's losing nationally, and he is on, on the verge of losing in a major landslide. So clearly, Donald Trump recognizes that things need to change, which is one reason why uh, we saw that staff shake up this week, uh, him bringing on a new campaign manager, a new campaign CEO, uh, while Manafort at that time, just a couple of days ago, uh, was still the c- campaign chairman, was still uh, supposedly uh, the one calling the shots, but it was clear that he had been marginalized, and and probably in no small part uh, of these damaging stories that have come out in the last several days, showing his ties uh, to pro-Russian interests in Ukraine. Uh, that has not been helpful. There have been more and more stories about his lobbying efforts uh, on that behalf, uh, on behalf of these uh, pro-Russian groups. But I'm not sure if that was in and of itself uh, why. Maybe that was one big, one reason why he stepped aside. We're still learning uh, all the details, but it, it really is just shows they needed to do something different. The campaign yeah. needed to do something different. Yeah, I think those two things are intertwined, the, the Russia allegations, but also Paul Manafort was never really a creature of the Donald Trump campaign. Manafort was supposed to be this Washington wise man who was going to be brought in to make Donald Trump, quote, more presidential. Well, two months into that effort, you know, it had plainly failed. Man- you know, Trump was not able to pivot from this sort of um, brash, you know, Twitter happy character that he was during the primaries. Uh, to the quote-unquote more presidential candidate. He didn't want to do it. It didn't fit him. It didn't suit him. He didn't want to be scripted. So we saw this big campaign shakeup this week in which Manafort was kind of pushed upstairs and replaced by Kellyanne Conway as campaign manager and Steve Bannon, a Breitbart executive. And, And so just to wrap up, I think 
Manafort probably, we don't know this, but he probably also disagreed with the direction in which the campaign was going. A, he had become a distraction over the Russia allegations, and B, he just doesn't fit in this campaign mold. At the same time, Olivier, yesterday we heard Donald Trump say he regrets some of the things he said. He said that uh, perhaps some of what he has said has caused pain. Isn't that a pivot in and of itself? Well, the, the danger in describing that as a pivot is that Donald Trump has, on multiple occasions, uh, done what amounts to a 360-degree pivot, where we all report that he's now he's changing, now he's going to break from his unorthodox strategies, and he's going to become a more conventional candidate. He's going to build bridges to the establishment, and every time we've been wrong. Uh, it was a notable moment in the speech because we haven't heard that kind of public contrition from Donald Trump. In fact, quite the opposite. Most of the time, when he's confronted with uh, uh, with his remarks, he usually adds another layer. He doesn't back off. Um, so this was notable, but I don't – the cast of characters can change, but the leading man, I think, is going to stay the same. And, uh, and he is down in Louisiana today with his vice presidential running mate, Governor Pence. That's right, and that's going to add fuel to the fire uh, of whether or not Barack Obama should have um, publicly commented or maybe considered a, a visit to Louisiana. What you hear from the, the White House is they point out that the president signed a, a, a major disaster declaration, which frees up federal money um, for Louisiana, and, uh, uh, and that if he visits now, he would actually be taking resources away from the rescue, recovery, and reconstruction effort. Interesting. Yeah, so... Uh, I do think this uh, could be, though, Barack Obama's Katrina moment. You know, Louisiana was uh, the optics of a Louisiana storm, a terrible storm, were very, very difficult for Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush. He flew over Louisiana uh, memorably in Air Force One, was photographed looking down at the devastation from Hurricane Katrina and was roundly criticized for not going. So one thing the public expects of presidents is to feel their pain, as Bill Clinton would have said. And uh, people are want to hear from the president. I think it was a mistake for the president not to personally come out and say, Washington is with you. Even if he wasn't going, he might have come out and had his face on camera announcing federal aid for Louisiana, telling Louisianans, um, you need to clean up now. I will get there when I uh, when it's more appropriate. I suspect we will see a visit yeah. by Barack Obama. A real risk for the president is he's in Martha's Vineyard. He was playing golf yesterday with Larry David, uh, just at the same time as uh, newspaper editorials in the state were calling on him to come to Louisiana. So a risk. I mean, it, the scope of the de devastation there is pretty remarkable. I mean, it, this is the worst disaster since Hurricane Sandy. There have been 6.9 trillion gallons of rain uh, between August Gosh. 8th and August 14th. Yeah. 13 people have died. There have been 40,000 homes destroyed. A lot of people have uh, filing flood insurance claims. So uh, a real, real serious situation down there. 86,000 filing flood insurance claims. Just Indeed. Two, two quick points. One is the, the question of the Katrina issue. We're, we're going to find out very quickly whether the government response was adequate because that was really the underlying problem with, with Katrina. And the other thing is I, I, I talked about public contrition earlier. I should say the media shouldn't hold its head particularly high either. Um, there has been a relative lack of coverage of these floods. Um, now, granted, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but it, it's been it hasn't been as much of a national news story. And this actually dovetails with the president not coming out, I think, because if he comes out 
and says, you know, we're on top of this, we're releasing aid, we, we feel your pain, and the rest of it, I think that galvanizes uh, coverage, it galvanizes uh, donations, and, and it has a real effect on the public response. And what about the fires going on out in California? Just totally devastating. Yeah, devastating wildfires out there. Uh, you know, you do wonder if it's also going to make us have more of a discussion, frankly, about climate change. Whenever we see these kind of natural disasters, this flood in Louisiana, for instance, is supposedly a thousand year flood, a thousand, not talking a hundred year flood. And the terrible wildfires in California come in a context of a time when we have been talking about warming of the earth. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that conversation happening very soon as so well. So if Donald Trump and Governor Pence are down there in Louisiana, what have we heard from Hillary Clinton about what's going on down there? Well, not a lot. I mean, she's uh, quiet today. There's going to be, I, I don't know if there's any public events scheduled, but that's, it puts pressure on her, too. I mean, Donald Trump doing this, uh, going down there was uh, an interesting move, an unexpected move. Uh, and it puts uh, the ball back in Hillary Clinton's court to decide on how to handle it. But, you know, they're going to make the argument that the White House has made that going down there doesn't do a whole lot at this point. But... Clearly, they're going to have to acknowledge it, given how serious of a disaster it is. BA, uh, Donald Trump got his first national security briefing this week. What is the tradition on that? What is put out there and what is withheld? The tradition has its roots in Harry Truman uh, assuming the presidency after Franklin Delano Roosevelt died and basically discovering that we had this atomic bomb program. Um, well, Harry Truman didn't wasn't a big fan of that of that shock discovery, so he implemented. It's a tradition. It's not a law. It's a tradition that uh, the nominees of the two major parties, after the nominating conventions, get uh, classified briefings on national security and foreign policy. Um, they don't get a lot. Uh, there's been a lot of overblown rhetoric about this. Paul Ryan said Hillary Clinton shouldn't get these briefings because of her email controversy. Harry Reid said that Donald Trump shouldn't get these briefings because he uh, likes to talk. Um, the fact of the matter is they're not getting a lot more than what you hear in an, in the annual uh, what's called the uh, Global Threat Assessment Hearing in Congress, which is the director of national intelligence kind of going around the world and explaining to lawmakers where he sees the biggest problems. There are three phases to these. The first are these briefings, which are not that detailed. They're classified mostly to let the nominee ask questions. Um, you see it in Congress sometimes when someone asks a question and, and the director of national intelligence has to go into closed session. It's seen to secret. Then there's the uh, uh, the day after Election Day, where you get a lot more detail. And finally, there's Inauguration Day, or, or the day after, when you're actually getting the goods. They are not getting sources and methods. If the Navy SEALs are on their way somewhere, they don't hear that today. Um, these these briefings are really not that detailed. But uh, Levier Knox, he's chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News. We'll take a short break here. When we come back, we've got callers, emails. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Stay with us. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and 
Curiosities. From the district. Tacoma Park. Alexandria. Friendship Heights. Hyattsville. Falls Church. Northeast Washington, D.C. In your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back to our Friday News Roundup of National Stories. Today with Manu Raju. He's with CNN, Olivier Knox of Yahoo News, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times. We talked earlier about the resignation after 144 days of being with the Trump campaign. Paul Manafort has resigned. Here is Donald Trump's statement. Quote, this morning, Paul Manafort offered, I accepted his resignation from the campaign. He goes on to say he's very appreciative of his work. And finally, Paul is a true professional. I wish him the greatest success. I know that you mentioned Kellyanne Conway, who is now campaign manager. Tell us about her. She's a pollster, a Republican pollster, a longtime pollster here uh, in Washington, and she became a senior advisor to the campaign uh, earlier this year. Uh, she's, you know, it's an, it was an interesting choice to name her and Steve Bannon, who's the head of Breitbart, uh, the conservative uh, right-wing news website, at the same time, because they both sort of represent different uh, polls of the uh, Republican universe, if you will, uh, where as uh, Bannon may be considered more of someone uh, on the on the right, the far right of the party. Uh, Kelly and Con- Conway can be considered more in the mainstream establishment side of the party, someone who's uh, trying to showcase a, a different side of Donald Trump. Uh, you heard her yesterday uh, speak publicly about what her new role would be as the campaign manager. She's going to try to, as she said, sharpen, the par- sharpen Donald Trump's message uh, a- a heading into the general election. And perhaps you may have seen that effect last night in his speech in, in, in North Carolina, where he had some contrition and talked about he had some uh, regrets uh, for uh, th- uh, things that he has said in the past. And maybe you'll see a different message heading into the general election. Cheryl. Yeah, I'd like to actually draw a little distinction there with what Manu said, which is that both Bannon and Kellyanne Conway are definitely on the right of the party ideologically. But Bannon is more of a scorched earth, I think, practitioner of Republican politics. Whereas here in Washington, Kellyanne Conway is known as someone who is the ultimate professional. She is uh, she's direct. She's forceful. And I thought she said a very interesting thing on CNN yesterday. She said, I want to win on the argument. And what that means is that this has been a campaign about personality. You can expect under Kellyanne Conway, Trump to start talking about the issues. She is going to push him as hard as she can to get him to take the issues directly to Hillary Clinton and to make this a fight about ideology and about beliefs and less so about personality, which is where the Clinton campaign wants to have this fight. And yet yesterday we heard a great deal of noise about whether Hillary Clinton was mentally, physically fit to take office. Again, um, we have yet to be right in this campaign when we predict a (laughs) Donald Trump pivot or that Donald Trump will moderate his approach. 
Um, I, I, past may not be prologue, may not be perfect predictor, but I don't think we're going to see that different of Donald Trump, to be totally honest. He, he had that moment of that notable moment of public contrition yesterday. He has an ad up today that goes aggressively after undocumented immigrants. I don't think the leading man of that campaign is is ready for a, a script rewrite. Yeah. So he's not yeah. going to change positions on something I th- as basic I think as that. She, if I could rephrase Cheryl's point, I think what what Kellyanne Conway brings uh, back to the to the campaign with Manafort's departure is is actually organization. She's an extremely she's a methodical operative. She was a cruise advisor. She's a smart, methodical operative who I think. Because she speaks the language of polls and ratings, can maybe, maybe uh, reach Donald Trump in ways that Paul Manafort couldn't. And she also, in in some ways, uh, I won't say she's like Donald Trump, but she is very direct. She's forceful, and she's someone who is not going to try to remold Trump the way Manafort wanted to remold him into someone who is more presidential. She wants to let him be authentic. She would probably be of the let Trump be Trump school, but let's just direct him a little bit and, and rein and him keep. in and let him talk about issues and not go so much um, on the attack. All right. And finally, Manu, there's an interesting story this week about Trump's overdue taxes in New Jersey and Chris Christie, what was that all about? Yeah, it, it turned out to be he had a multi-million dollar tax bill in New Jersey. I believe it was $30 million uh, r- relating to his uh, uh, casinos uh, that had uh, were due overdue taxes in, in New Jersey. And, and at the time when Chris Christie became governor, uh, shortly after that, they apparently had cut some sort of deal and uh, the tax bill went away with uh, only a $5 million uh, payment from uh, Donald Trump. Um, you know, we don't know all the details. Yeah, that's ab- something a governor could accomplish. You know, it's there. It's common. I, from what I, from reading about this, uh, I'm not an expert on this on this type of issue, but it's common to, to cut a deal where something a uh, payment would be much less than originally uh, what someone owed. Uh, perhaps maybe not that much less, uh, but it raised a lot of questions about the Christie-Trump uh, relationship, and it once again put a spotlight on the fact that Donald Trump has yet to release his t- own tax returns, uh, which is highly unusual for a presidential right. candidate. Let's turn to Hillary Clinton this week. The FBI gave Congress some documents related to her emails. What's in those documents? Well, we're going we're to start finding out any minute now. This is basically the, the summaries, the accounts of her interviews with the FBI as part of the FBI's investigation into her exclusive use of a private email server to do business, government business, when she was Secretary of State. Um, you know, it's, it's highly unusual for the FBI to provide these kinds of documents. The Hillary campaign, very interestingly, is uh, calling on the the full release with, of course, with classified uh, edits, the full release of these documents. I think what they expect is at any minute now we're going to start seeing a, a steady flow of leaks from Congress partially describing what she told the FBI in the investigation. Well, one thing that's already trickling out is that she apparently told the FBI that Colin Powell, her predecessor, Republican, one of her Republican predecessors at the at state, um, suggested that she use her own private email account. And there's been a lot of hay made over this. It supposedly happened at a dinner party that was hosted by Madeleine Albright. She said, asked and any of the former secretaries of state, do you have any advice? And it sounds like perhaps on the way out the door, Colin Powell said to Hillary Clinton, well, use your own private email account. That, I must say, is a far cry from saying, use your own private email server. 
Um, if that conversation did happen, that's kind of intriguing, but I don't think it really gets Hillary Clinton off the hook for the um, for what transpired at the State Department and, under her um, direction. And it comes just as Republicans in the House are trying to push the idea that uh, Hillary Clinton committed perjury in her 2015 testimony before the House Benghazi Committee when she said that she did not send or received any emails marked classified. Uh, they're trying to make that case uh, to the FBI, to the Justice Department, to move forward with uh, some sort of perjury investigation. Uh, right now, the Justice Department is saying they'll only look at it as necessary, so it's unclear what kind of action, but it also shows uh, that there's still a lot of time left in this election, that there's something that could be revealed that could change the complexion, the dynamic of the race. So should we never to assume that the outcome is already uh, pretty good? All is right, and some interesting announcements from the Clinton Foundation about the activities of Bill Clinton, what he will, will not do, no more speeches. Yeah, no more speeches, no more corporate donations or uh, foreign donations right. uh, to uh, the Clinton Foundation. And this comes at the same time uh, as there have been increasing number of criticism and scrutiny uh, over the relationship of big Clinton Foundation donors and to the Hillary Clinton State Department, including emails that have been re revealed showing an effort to s uh, set up meetings uh, between uh, some of those uh, big donors and senior level uh, State Department officials. Uh, the, the Clinton campaign says there were no meetings set up. There was not a quid pro quo, but it has only fed that argument uh, from Donald Trump that this is about pay-to-play politics. And clearly the Clinton campaign and Bill Clinton recognize that at least there's an opportunity optics problem, and that's why they're doing this. You know, just on a lighter note, it does raise the intriguing notion of how would Bill Clinton inhabit the role of first gentleman should Hillary Clinton uh, get elected, and that uh, we have so many weighty uh, things to discuss here today and so much going on in the world, but in the back of people's minds here in Washington, at least, that is kind of a one, you know, and a matter of intrigue. You know, what will he do? How, how would he would he go to an office in the East Wing? Who's going to, you know, host uh, be her at and her side for state dinners? Et interesting that the cookie competition, the Clintons renamed their cookie as the Clinton family cookie recipe, whereas uh, the Trump campaign came forward with his wife's shaped in the uh, shape of the star yeah. with <laughs> apparently yogurt in the uh, yogurt or sour cream, one or the other. Well, you know, too many cooks, right? Uh, <laughs> right. I know, I know Diane asked the question on the show, but I'm, I'm perplexed by how long it took the Clintons to come around to this idea that the Clinton Foundation, that they needed to announce steps. If yeah. elected, the following things will and will not happen at the Clinton Foundation. I'm very surprised by the timing. They've been under fire for more than a year over this foundation, and I, I, I don't cover the Clinton campaign. I don't talk to her people that much, so I don't know what precipitated this, but I'm fascinated to know why in late, in mid to late August, they finally I, come around to the idea that this is a liability. I wondered if they felt they just had to do it before September 1st. You know, Labor Day is the time when the campaigns really kick off. They maybe want to just get that... Uh, get the their get that now. point out there yeah. now and have it set so it doesn't blow up for them after Labor Day. Manu? Yeah, and, and also more possibly more emails uh, coming out that would actually showcase uh, raise some more of these questions. So why not try to deal with it now? Maybe even if it may be too late. All right. Here are two emails. One from Holly. She said, "Your panel speaking about Obama not going to L uh, to Louisiana." 
needs to check latest information. The governor of Louisiana was on Lawrence O'Donnell's program last night and reported that he asked Obama not to come now as it depletes so much of the police and first responders when he visits any place. He is not comparable to Bush flying over New Orleans in any way. The governor also stated that Obama had called him immediately, declared a disaster, and sent help. We've made we basically every one of these points. Okay. We talked about the major disaster declaration. We talked about how it would take away resources from rescue, recovery, and reconstruction. Um, I, I can only suppose that the listener tuned in late. Yeah. On the other hand, for the president to appear on television and say, I am doing this, might also have contributed to the weight of his doing that. Yeah, uh, that, that's true. But w- w- we did note earlier, I believe I noted earlier on the show that the governor of Louisiana had asked, had said that he would prefer the president come a week to 10 days down the road when it wouldn't be so burdensome um, for the uh, for the state. And there's, yeah, there's nothing precluding the president from making a statement from Martha's Vineyard. He'd done that yeah, repeatedly sure. through his presidency. Sure. All right. We're going to take a short break here. Our lines are filled. We've got other emails. We'll uh, certainly let you know that you are listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And let's go right to the phones to Mick in Delray Beach, Florida. Uh, You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I'm really shocked at America. I'm a 100% disabled veteran, 71 years old. I've never seen an election cycle like this. Um, And I do not understand how so many Americans can support somebody like Trump who wants to vet immigrants but doesn't vet his own staff. Paul Manafort, bad guy, so many things that um, are just negative. And I wish America would wake up and realize that our values should be much stronger than that. All right. Thanks for calling. You know, I think the caller raises an interesting point, although I would frame it a little bit differently, and that is that when someone runs for president, we can see what kind of manager he or she would be by the way he runs or she runs the campaign. And so we're in essence getting a preview of how both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton would behave in the Oval Office, or at least a preview of their management styles. And so to the extent that Mr. Trump is viewed as having inadequately vetted his staff, that is a reflection on how he might run his government should he take the White House. And one thing we have not talked about with the caller sort of alluded to is uh, Donald Trump's speech from earlier this week about foreign policy when he talked about extreme vetting uh, of people coming well, into I, this I country. I don't understand what that means. Do you? Well, did... it's a, he's, it, all the details are not uh, clearly out there uh, yet, but what he's trying to talk about is an ideological test uh, for people coming into this country, uh, whether it's background checks to determine whether or not uh, someone uh, would do harm to the United States or someone uh, was would be sympathetic to terrorist causes. You know, there are a lot of questions about how this would be implemented. Yeah, uh, but uh, the fact that he's so. but the fact that he's talking about that uh, showcases uh, it, it's all part of uh, Donald Trump's very hardline rhetoric against uh, immigration, particularly right. illegal immigration. To Cleveland, Ohio. Hi, Dave. You're on the air. 
Hello. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you so much. Um, I'm concerned about this one phrase that's been used a lot. He needs to look presidential. He has proven through the past year that the comments he makes offends many people. So when a Republican comes out and says, we need to make him look presidential, he makes changes for the next three months. He suddenly looks presidential. He can probably convince the public if you look presidential, start to steam into the votes as fast as he went down just recently. Well, this gets us to another uh, topic, something that people don't necessarily think about, which is early voting, um, which is enormously important. You know, we're going to 35 states in Washington, D.C. will vote. We'll have the you'll, you'll have the opportunity to vote before Election Day. This is one of the big problems for the Trump campaign. You know, the national polls don't tell you much. We do. We don't do national elections in this country. We do state by state elections. Um, but if you look at places like Arizona and Ohio that are going to start voting in Oct- on October 12th, North Carolina and Florida, I think uh, October 31st, the, the window that Donald Trump has to attract voters, to, re- to, to achieve this sort of crossover appeal that he has not shown an inclination or ability to develop, at least to date, the window is closing fast. Um, and this is one of those things about an unorthodox campaign running into a very orthodox uh, reality of the way we do elections in this country. He could change minds, on the other hand, if he changes his delivery, if he changes his attitude. The question is, will he change his ideas? Short break here, and uh, we'll take more of your calls, comments when we come back. Stay with us. Welcome back. This week, health insurer Aetna announced it is pulling out of the Affordable Care Act exchanges in 11 states. Why do you think this happened, Manu? Well, they say they were incurring some heavy losses, and, and you know they're not required to be part of the uh, these Obamacare exchanges. Uh, but it's a very significant move. I mean, this is the third uh, largest health insurance company, uh, and it's one of the biggest that's involved uh, in these statewide exchanges. And the the real uh, concern now is that premiums are going to increase uh, across the country. Uh, fewer people will have potentially fewer choices, or people people. Have have fewer choices. They may have uh, not. They may have to get new coverage plans. They uh, may have lo- not be able to go to their doctor of their choice uh, if that doctor is not covered by their new insurance. So this is a very, very significant move, and it's, it, is, it shows that uh, there's still a lot of work to do to fix the Affordable Care Act. 
Yeah, so Republicans, of course, will pounce on this and say that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, isn't working. Um, the economics of the Affordable Care Act were always very delicate, right? It was predicated on the idea that everybody would sign up and so that healthy people, young people, would get into these insurance pools and would keep insurers' costs down. But what has happened is that many young people, healthy people, are opting for the tax penalty instead. They're staying out of these insurance pools. And who's diving in? Older people, sicker people. That's why costs are going up, and that's why you're seeing Aetna and other companies pull out. So how do you fix this? Congress really would have to step in and fix this. There are some ways to do it. Maybe make higher subsidies. That's not going to fly in a Republican Congress. What about a single-payer health care system, the so-called public option? Well, when they considered Obamacare, you know, Congress rejected that. So this is a very, very difficult problem. And, and in this environment, I don't, I don't know how it's going to get fixed. What about the Aetna-Humana deal? Right. So uh, the Huffington Post wrote up, they got a letter in which basically the Aetna said, if you don't approve our merger, we're not, we're going to pull out of the exchange. Now, the economics of this are a little complicated because you could see how a merger might bring their overall costs down. Um, But it certainly gave the appearance, liberals pounced on this and said, aha, they're not pulling out of the exchanges because of the economics they're pulling out because of of some underlying vindictiveness. Um, As I said, the economics don't necessarily back that up. Um, But that certainly led to a lot of raised eyebrows in D.C. and beyond. So could it lead to other insurers backing out? It could lead to other insurers backing out and other insurers coming in. There are a lot of mid-sized insurers and a couple of large ones, uh, Cigna, I think, um, that are actually doing pretty well on, on selling individual insurance on these exchanges. So but, it's the, the but, overall effect. I think Manu is right, though, that we could see some premium increases yeah. and we could see some individual Americans um, being pushed a- away from their doctors to find new doctors or, or new plans. And I want to, uh, Cheryl's point is yeah. important. It, both sides uh, are going to use this uh, to further their arguments, not just Republicans who say uh, we need to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something. Of course, Republicans are divided about what they will replace it with, and there's not really clear on what they would do. But on the left, uh, folks are going to say it is time for a public option. And Hillary Clinton has supported that in this uh, campaign. Let's take a caller on the ACA from Stan in Houston, Texas. You're on the air. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you, your panel, and uh, all the listeners sure. around the world. I was raised in a kind of medical family. My mother was an RN, a hospital administrator. I worked in hospitals. Many of us in my family and people that I knew there had very unfavorable opinions of the healthcare industry's insurance programs. Uh, this is a business where it's not like a car sales or a grocery store. When you go in to the hospital, you don't look at the menu and see what the prices are and decide yes or no if you want to have the steak or you want to have the fish. You go in, you need health care, you don't want to die. And so you take whatever it is, and the price, you don't know about it, it comes to you later in the bill. If companies like Aetna and United Healthcare and other health insurance companies can't make a profit in a restaurant where you order first and then find out how much it costs later, I think that's just another argument for this not-for-profit single-payer program. 
What do you think, uh, Olivier? Confess, I had a little bit of trouble following the the argument. Um, not because of your, not because of Stan in Houston, Texas, but because of my own inability to, to grasp the complexities of healthcare. So, I, uh, some a former health writer and someone who covered the passage of the ACA, the the caller is really making the classic argument against the our current insurance system, in which we have what is known as the third party payer system, where you don't go to the doctor and say, "Oh, I want my flu shot. It's twenty dollars," and you know you pay your twenty dollars, or if the doctor says your flu shot is fifty dollars, and you say, "Forget it. That's too expensive." You just go in and get it and somebody else pays for it. So nobody knows how much anything costs. Then the costs are going way up. So this caller is making the the argument for the single-payer system. That is an argument that has been rejected by the political leaders in this country when they considered reforming health care. All right. To Joe in South Bend, Indiana, you're on the air. Yeah. With regard to the Clinton Foundation... It, it would be very interesting to have to requ- have them post a list of who donated and when, and and look at the relationship between uh, when Hillary was um, uh, uh, Secretary of State and and what kind of monies were coming in, and a correlation with with regard to emails and the correspondence and the pressure being placed on, at, with, especially with, with with regard to China, I think. I think the figure was thrown around of six billion dollars in Chinese corporate contributions to the uh, to the foundation. All right, Manu. Well, I think a lot of that has already been uh, looked at pretty closely, and there's more that uh, is coming out. One of one detail that had come out in this past week uh, was an email about from one of Bill Clinton's top aides, Doug Band, uh, trying to arrange a meeting with a billionaire donor of the uh, Clinton Foundation, a man named Gilbert Chowgary, uh, uh, to discuss Lebanese issues uh, with a senior State Department official uh, that uh, – uh, that meeting did not go forward, but it did feed that perception that there is, uh, as critics would say, pay-to-play politics. The Clinton campaign denies that. But th- there has been a fair amount of scrutiny on this, and there's going to be more probably. Okay. I want to ask you all about these hackers who call themselves the shadow brokers who said they were responsible for leaking secret tools from the NSA. What happened, uh, Olivier? Well, we're still figuring out what happened, but what, but it appears that this group, whoever they are, whether they, uh, there's been speculation, um, I think Edward Snowden pointed the finger generally at, at the Russians, but it could also be a disgruntled uh, in, insider, uh, releasing the, the kinds of cyber weapons that the National Security Agency uses to disrupt, uh, well, we think, foreign computers. Um, uh, this is important because now uh, you can other countries can go back and look at attacks and, and figure out, based on the code that was used in these attacks, figure out whether it, the, the attack originated in at the NSA. That's very, very important. Um, it, it highlights, again, if you, if you build in vulnerabilities to systems, it only ta- it's only a matter of time before uh, other actors that you may not like can exploit those vulnerabilities. So um, not my area of expertise, but my wonderful colleague, David Sanger, who's a frequent guest on your show, wrote uh, this week that um, the coding resembled, he says, a series of products developed inside the NSA's highly classified tailored access operations unit some of which were described in general terms in documents that were stolen three years ago by Edward Snowden. The scary thing here is that 
These doc these were described in general terms under by those Snowden documents. What's been released here is far more specific. Yes. And that is very, very scary. And it, it frankly goes to this whole debate that we've been having domestically about the role of the NSA. We since Snowden uh the, the Snowden revelations, we've had this big debate here about is the NSA spying too much? Is it does it have too big a power? But I wonder if once our government secrets are out there and Maybe yeah, Americans. What does it mean for for national. our safety and yeah, our national exactly. security? I do wonder if it'll reframe that debate over the NSA's role in in our society, and, and not just the NSA's role, but also the fact that uh, Democratic uh, campaign of offices have also been hacked by what appears to be foreign interests, what appears to be uh, Russian interests, uh, showcasing the vulnerabilities of of. Democrat of our nation's leaders from one political party getting getting hacked in their internal systems. So uh, a lot of concerns about cybersecurity in this election year, and in who knows what it's going to lead to next. But potentially the revelation of more uh, internal uh, de- deliberations, conversations, proceedings between the Clinton campaign and Democratic leaders. It feels like a movie. You couldn't make this up. Exactly. It's also a good time to ask both candidates how where they stand on encryption. Should American citizens be able to conceal their communications from even their own government. All right, let's go to Laurel, Delaware. Jane, you're on the air. Thank you, Diane. This year, we have two of the most unpopular candidates, and some people are actually trying to decide between the lesser of two evils. There's been several independent candidates that have thrown their hat in the ring, Evan McMillan most recently, I think, and I'm wondering if because of the atmosphere of this campaign, is it possible that this might be the year that a third-party candidate gives the Republicans and the Democrats a run for their money? Good question. Look at the polls. The Pew poll that has just come out finds Hillary Clinton at 41 percent, Trump 37, so neither above 50. Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, 10 percent support, and Jill Stein, Four percent. So 14 percent of the American electorate does not want to vote for one of the major two party candidates on that debate stage. uh, The candidate must reach that 15 percent. But what I'm I guess what I'm suggesting is that it is possible that whoever is elected president will be elected not with a majority of the of support of the public, but with a plurality, much the same way Bill Clinton was elected when Ross Perot ran as a third party and candidate. Is, and it's true, both these candidates are incredibly unpopular. I was up in New Hampshire this past week. I interviewed the Democratic governor, Maggie Hassan, who's running for Senate there. I asked her three times. She's a Clinton supporter. I asked her three times, do you think Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy? She would not say yes. And three times that I asked her, it shows that that <laughs> there's a lot of concerns from even Democrats about their own yeah. candidates. And, and I was in Ohio this week, and where Rob Portman is running a, is running a race, and he's a, you know very um, mainstream, sort of uh, moderate sounding, not maybe moderate ideologically, but even keel, sort of gentle Republican, and he is running about as far as you can get from Donald Trump. But the answer doesn't to, want to be seen with the him. answer to Jane, who's who's rocking it in the three hundred two, uh, is no. Um, the third party candidates will not give the main candidates a run for their money. Uh, they're not on enough ballots nationwide. Uh, but the interesting, the two figures to look at are 15% and 5%. 15% gets you on the debate stage. 5% will qualify you for federal matching funds. So we may be seeing the beginnings of um, what, we've, what we've seen for now for at least a decade, 
incredibly growing anger at the two-party yeah. system. I and using the Internet, could someone – imagine Ross Perot with the Internet. Imagine an organized candidate getting on the ballot in 50 states, um, using the Internet to raise money and to organize voters – that could be that could change the way the the the, the American electoral landscape. Yeah. And you know, Ramano, I was struck that CNN last night did a, or the other night did a town hall with Jill Stein. The Green. Mm-hmm. When was the last time CNN did a town hall with the Green Party candidate? <laughs> it shows the level Never. of dissatisfaction that many Americans have with the with the major party choices. All right, to Gina in Fort Lee, Virginia. You're on the air. Hello, Diane. Thank you for taking my call. Surely. I, I, I love your show. Um, my husband and I, my husband spent 30 years in the Army. I spent 12. We're originally from West Virginia, and I just came from St. Louis where I have a home. Um, we talk of, I heard you mention the floods in Louisiana, and my heart goes out to those people. Indeed. Because my home state just had a thousand-year flood in June. And I feel like, really, it's been vastly overlooked by pretty much everyone. Um, you know, it was on page 13 of the New York Times when the flood happened. Brexit knocked it off the news. And I know we're under the stereotype of poor Appalachian people. We're always poor. But I can tell you the devastation in my state, 80% of the state was affected my county of Nicholas County, where Summersville Lake, all the rivers, creeks flooded. And I, I can just give you kind of a point here. Uh, we live on Summersville Lake near it, and it didn't just raise 7 feet or 20 feet. It rose 75 feet. Wow. That is the magnitude of this flood. Indeed. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm Show. I think Gina points out the human devastation that these natural disasters create, the homelessness, the loss of everything. Mm -hmm. And she's absolutely right that other stories seem to take precedence over what is happening. Yeah, I, I want to actually directly address that because I think she unknowingly is also pointing up something else, which is that we as journalists are simply overwhelmed. She said the story ran on the inside page of the New York Times on the day when Brexit happened. Um, I myself actually wrote just this week about Appalachia and the coal economy there. Interestingly, that story was the fifth most emailed story on our list. So you can tell, I could tell, I spent time in eastern Kentucky, that the people of Appalachia are crying out to have their voices heard. And and so many Americans are crying out to have their voices heard. And yet the news is so overwhelming in this cycle that I think all of us almost feel like it's simply impossible to pay attention to the human suffering, to all the things that are going on. But I and find myself wondering whether we're covering the wrong maybe, things. Maybe we are. You know, uh, and maybe, the caller maybe is telling us that. instead of talking about um, uh, the Clinton Foundation, exactly who donated to it, or Donald Trump's regretful uh, vocabulary, we really ought to be talking more about what's happening. Those fires in 
uh, California, the devastation that they are wreaking. I mean, it's really incredible. But we're also picking a president, and that's a very important decision no for the question. country. No uh, question. However, I think unless we turn to the British model and sort of limit election coverage and election processes to, what, two months before an election— not going to change, and that's what's tough. Thank you all for being here today. Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times, Olivier Knox of Yahoo News, Manu Raju, who used to be with the Washington Post and is now with CNN. Congratulations, Thank you. Manu. Thank you to all of you, and thanks all for listening. I'm, I'm Diane Rain. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Botti, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR. NPR.